our biggest strength as, as an immigrant community is when we come together. We realize that we're not alone and that we can be so much more empowered by one another. Welcome to the 20th episode of On the Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. This podcast is a place where you can come to meet the creatives and newsmakers taking this metropolis to the next level, a place where you can learn about what's really happening in Phoenix. My name is Philip Haldeman, and I'll be your host. Our format on On the Grid has pretty much been straightforward since we started this podcast about two years ago. But earlier this year, we decided to dig a little deeper and explore a topic that's been front and center in recent months. Immigration is an issue that affects us all, but living in a border state, even more so here. That's why we decided to focus on DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, an Obama policy that allows kids who are brought into the country illegally and who have largely become a part of our culture an opportunity for deferred deportation. So this installment of On the Grid begins a series exploring DACA. The temperature on this issue has been rising since Donald Trump was elected. He set a March 5th deadline for DACA protections to end, sparking anxiety in thousands of DACA recipients and their families that live in our cities and towns. All through this, many DACA recipients have become productive members of our society, and we have one of them today here. Karina Ruiz is president of the Arizona Dream Act Coalition, a migration youth-led organization that focuses on higher education and immigration rights. There's a movement afoot that has been growing as this deadline approaches, and Karina is one of the leaders here in Arizona. Karina, thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really glad to have this opportunity to share my story. Karina, where were you born? I was born in Mexico City, Tlanepantla, Estado de Mexico. And how did you find yourself in the United States? Um, at the age of 15 uh, in Mexico, the students um, in the UNAM, the kind of high school over there, um, did a, a student strike. And it happened at the time that my sister, I have an older sister, and she came to the U.S. escaping domestic violence a year before I came. Um, and she called my parents and said, hey, uh, there's... And your parents were in Arizona at that point? Or? They were in Mexico. Okay. So we were in Mexico. The only one that had come before uh, had been my sister with her son. Um, and they were escaping domestic violence, essentially. Um, and she uh, she called us. It was in... I remember it must have been September of 1999. She called my parents and told them that there was uh, job opportunities for them. Um, in Mexico, it is harder to find a job the older you are. So they didn't have many opportunities over there. And so I was not in school because there was a student strike um, in the school that I got admitted to. So the students actually went on strike? They actually closed the whole place. They had like chairs out in the entrance they would not let any professor any anybody go in <laughs> any were you a part of the strike i was not i was i was young at the time i was i was 15 um so i didn't it was like the older students that did that i'm curious what were they rebelling against i believe the issue that they had and this was like in the high school in mexico they um they were complaining about how much they were paying and that they were not like getting um education like the way they should it could have been some teachers also that were there um and so all i know and all i remember is like the school was closed 
and my sister called them and they she she had the news there's uh, there's a job opportunity where she was working for them and uh, they they decided to bring me along because I was not going to school so the plan was for me to come for one year but that year turning to 18 years already um, we left together my mom my dad uh, and myself left uh, Mexico um, just with that idea of uh, for me it was to work one year and then go back and it was the same thing for them when I came here I found out I couldn't work because I was 15 I had to wait until I was 16 I was like oh great um, the alternative was uh, to go to school how did you make the journey from Mexico City to Arizona was your sister living in Phoenix yes my okay. sister was living in Phoenix um, and well we we took an airplane um, oh. my sister actually sent money for us to take uh, a plane at that time I honestly didn't want to come uh, because it was hard um, my parents just said we're leaving we're leaving in like two days it was very quick it was something that was decided really quick what they told us was don't bring anything that was the advice we still bought we still brought a little I remember I had a little backpack with like two two changes and um, socks we flew from Mexico to um, Sonora Hermosillo Sonora uh, we got there, and there was somebody that was arranged to to bring us over here. Um, they told us, "Don't don't take anything. We we cannot have you bring anything." So we left those things that we we got with us in in a place. I guess they sold them afterwards, so they even made money from that. My parents didn't know that we were gonna come that way. They didn't have any idea. My sister didn't really explain to them. It was like I I left my life behind. All the people that I left behind. And when you got to Phoenix, what happened? Did you just have to jump into school real quickly? How did you adjust? Yeah, so um, I crossed in September. So uh, school had already started. Uh, when I went to high school, I started. I had to wait until January to start school. So I was a semester late. Did you speak English? I actually had some English uh, from uh, junior high. Uh, that was one of the required classes that we had. And so I actually had some notion of the language. Um, when I watched TV, I didn't understand that. I got headaches listening to people speaking so fast and some of the common language that I was not used to. I was like, this is not English, this is Chinese or something else. Mm. And I had to put the CC on to the captions to read it. And then eventually I was able to, to understand it by listening. Um, but that was tough in a way. Um, all that adjustment to the language, the culture. What was, what was the biggest adjustment when you got here? I mean... How did you look at Americans? What puzzled you about living here? I mean, it's a completely different environment. Yeah, it is. I think that um, I felt like people didn't didn't care about one another. They they had like this apathy to one another. And in Mexico, it was different because um, people sometimes if they needed something, they would look for their neighbors for help and support. At what point did you actually start feeling comfortable here? Oh, I think the the, the first year was the toughest one. Um, being home, feeling homesick, and then being away from my siblings. Um, and that was, I think, the toughest part. Um, 
But then again, I made friends in school. What school did you go to? Sunny Slope High School. I I was in the ESL class, and so that all that helped a lot because there were other students that didn't speak English as well, um, and other students that even though we didn't disclose our immigration status, you could tell. In senior year, it became more evident because, like students like myself, I was in the JROTC. In the Air Force JROTC, I was cadet commander there, and the second semester, and everybody was asking, right, like, what are you gonna do? And are you getting your driver's license? These kind of things that you're like, oh no, I'm just gonna wait, or oh, I don't know. So those answers tipped you off. Yes, and and you wonder, and since since I was in that same situation, I kind of like just kind of like by elimination <laughs> they I assumed in a way that that they didn't have a, a good status and but it was something that we didn't really talk about um it was a very uh, sensitive topic I think it is still um but nowadays with so many students coming out and, and saying undocumented and unafraid because we learned that we had to speak up in order for people to support us and to 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 see that we were not what um, some people painted um, we were not these bad people that were here for for no good we had to speak up and and show our faces and when people found out that we were undocumented they were actually surprised because they had this concept of an undocumented person as a criminal or somebody that didn't pay taxes or somebody that was not good but when they learned that they had known somebody and that has been actually having a hard time to go to school a hard time to get a job and to thrive um that actually, um, in a way, I, I had people that said that they admire me because they see that I haven't had it easy. Some people say we take their jobs, but the reality is that we have a hard time to get a job. We don't qualify for benefits. So if I get sick, I have to just go to the pharmacy and get something and hope that it's not something really bad because I don't have insurance and I don't have access to healthcare and so that complicates so many other things and school even though we pay taxes in everything we buy if you own a home you also pay those taxes and, and there's money that goes to the schools and to the state we don't get the benefits of um of getting scholarships or financial aid at what point did you feel like you were more comfortable to speak more freely um i think it was when i got daca okay when was that that was in 2013 i don't know exactly when daca came out june 15 of 2012 okay so you kind of jumped on that it sounds like yes yeah. i did i actually went to a forum and like the place was packed and I looked around going like where were all these people all this time uh other than a few people that I knew that were undocumented I didn't know anybody else or so to me it was very surprising to see all that people trying to get did you rest easy a little bit I actually did because I felt like I was not alone um so I graduated from high school in 2003 um, I went after school, uh, be before school, summer classes, everything I did in order to catch up and graduate on time. Um, and I applied for a ASU, 
I didn't know if I was gonna be accepted. When I talked to my counselor, I was very blessed that she didn't like told me that I couldn't go. Were you honest with her about your status? I just told her I didn't have a social security number. Okay. She told me, just try, apply, and, and we'll see how it goes. So I did, I got accepted. Um, next thing I knew, I was going to ASU. It was very different from high school because I didn't really see any undocumented students or mm. anybody that I could even guess that they were. Because there were very few Hispanics to begin with. There were hardly any Hispanic women at that time and hardly any in the sciences. And my degree was in biochemistry. So all I could see was white male uh, or Asian um, students. And that was a really tough moment in my life because I didn't, I didn't feel like support from other students. Like in high school with the ESL classes, I had that network and that support of other people that were like me. But at ASU, I didn't have that. And that made it so much more tougher. College is when you start breaking out and experimenting, trying things new. But it sounds like you had a little bit more difficult time. Mm -hmm. I, I felt very much out of place. And uh, I was working at the time. This was before eBerify. Uh, so I was working. And of course, I couldn't be very uh, vocal about my status or anything. All the money that I made was going to my school. Um, and when people think that we take their children's scholarships, that is so not true. I pay for most of my education by working 10, 12 hour shifts. Whatever it took, I was going to do. I was not expecting to be given anything by anyone. I wanted to graduate and that was my goal. And I would do anything that I had to do to, to achieve that goal and make my parents proud. Unfortunately, in 2006, Proposition 300 came about with 70% of the vote. Proposition 300 required undocumented youth to pay out-of-state tuitions. So that was a big jump in tuition. Yes. Yeah. I barely afford right. what with my... How close were you to graduating at that point? I was a year and a semester away. Uh, when it was implemented, right. I was a year and a semester away. So tuition maybe doubles or triples? It triples. It yeah. closes, it's close to triple. And on top of that, I had the commuting because at that time I had one son already. So it wasn't as easy as saying, oh, I'm going to leave on campus or I'm going to like leave close by there because the rent there is kind of high. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to commute every day, the gas money, all those expenses. It was, it was very, very hard. Um, but I, I had that goal of graduating and, and I felt devastated when, when they took that away from me. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So I sat my family down, um, on the table. And I said, I am going to leave school, but my dream is going to be on pause. Um, and one day I will achieve my dream of graduating. And I made that promise to them. Uh, so um, it was a very, very tough decision. I remember my former boss did not understand why or how in the world I was making that decision. To them, it was like, oh, you have a great future. You're like, if you can do biochemistry, like you can do <laughs> a lot of things, right? Um, and 
they didn't understand why why I was making that decision because I couldn't disclose that I was undocumented, um, putting my 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 job in jeopardy. Um, with eVerify, if you work before it was implemented, they couldn't check your status uh, unless you were a new hire person, and that made it really really tough. So I had to leave school for four and a half years until DACA came about, um, and actually when. When DACA came about, I was celebrating because I said, okay, finally, I'm going to be able to go back and, and achieve my dream. And the, in, on August 15, 2012, former Governor Jambroer came out and said, you won't get the benefit as a DACA recipient of any state tuition or driver's licenses. And again, that was devastating. That was another hit. It was hit after hit. It was, it was like, it was raining. And again, my hopes of graduating and, and, and being a scientist or a teacher or science teacher, again, were, were thrown in the trash like that. Fortunately, at that time, when I looked for help for um, my filling out of my DACA, I ran into leaders from the Arizona Gemma Coalition who were doing those forums, uh, informing uh DACA dreamers, essentially. The story goes with this organization that a group of ASU students, when Proposition 300 came about, they got an emergency scholarship to continue one more year. I actually was one of those students, but because I worked, I couldn't make it to the meeting. Otherwise, I would have started way earlier and I would have probably be be one of the co-founders. but I guess it wasn't my time. Uh, I, I was working at the time and, and I didn't really have much time for doing anything else other than just working to provide for my family. Uh, so these students got in, in the basement of one of the buildings at ASU. They got together. They, they, they actually fear that they might got like caught by eyes or like a raid or something. Um, I can just imagine how how afraid they were of even coming together. Um, and I hear oftentimes Dulce Matus, one of the co-founders, when she talks about the story of how the organization started, and she, she says that they were uh, very much afraid. But then as they looked in that classroom with about 300 other people like them, they felt at ease that they were not alone. Um, similar to the ease that I found when when I saw that forum full of people like me. Um, so again, I think our biggest strength as, as an immigrant community is when we come together, we realize that we're not alone and, and that we can be um, so much more empowered um, by one another. How much of your work are you putting into the Arizona Dream Act Coalition now? Is it a big part of your life? Yes. Um, so when I left this, uh, when I left the school and I kept working, I always wanted to do something to change my situation, but I didn't know how. When I got involved in the organization, I kept working f- for a little while, um, and I actually went back to school. Uh, one of my friends said, "Hey, call ASU and find out what you need to graduate." I did. They said, "You're in good standing. You can come back." And because I couldn't apply for in-state tuition. I had to take one class a semester. So my last semester um, took a year and a half. Uh, and 
Finally, in 2015, I was able to graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry after 12 years starting on my degree. Um, and I was able to to make my parents proud and, and walk. And I did it more than anything for them because that was their dream. And um, it hurts a lot that to this day I cannot use my degree. It is, it is very tough that I'm making my life be on pause again because we're still fighting this. Um, I have the choice of going to work right now because I have my work permit and, and be a biochemist or, or be a, a science teacher. But I have chosen to, um, to be in the movement full time because if I don't have that protection, I don't have anything. If I don't have that work permit, I won't be able to be a scientist and work. And um, if I if I don't have a pathway to citizenship, um, my life is always going to be in limbo. And I don't want that. So I decided once again to put my life on, on hold because this takes priority. And I decided to uh, to be, be a, a part in the, in the fight and, and a face for all of those that either are afraid of speaking up or that are doing what they're be what they're supposed to be doing what what um that win of daca allow us to do which is work and go to school um and i always encourage students to participate in whatever activity they can because it's going to make the movement stronger um, but i made that personal decision of um working at the arizona dream coalition i'm currently the executive director for the organization. So I'm a biochemist here trying to run a nonprofit without any experience. Um, I think it's really amazing and it's huge. I think you're doing exactly what you should be doing, which is saying, okay, what's the next step? Um, November 9th, um, we went to DC with United with Dream. Uh, we are an affiliate of, of that uh, network. And this is ADAC, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so ADAC, ADAC, uh, the Arizona Dream Coalition, it's an affiliate of United with Dream, which is a uh, like a network of organizations uh, nationwide that are working on immigrant rights or for um, immigrant youth. Um, and so we're going with them. We went on November 9th, um, a couple of people um, and myself went that time from our group and uh, we took over uh, the Hart Senate building. It was over 1,500 people. And so we went there and uh, we dropped some banners. And that's public. You can go in there, right? You don't need an appointment or anything like that? It is public. Yeah, we did say we we're going to go lobbying. Um, so we got all, all those people there and there's people from Florida, New Mexico, New York, Washington, California, Arizona, uh, Denver. Um, there were about nine states that uh, had people participating in that. And that was, that was a life-changing experience. I'd never seen, I mean, we had some of the big marches here back in 2006, but it was just marching. Um, and now we were organized we were there and some people got arrested some people risk arrest and it was so well organized that only those who made the decision of risking arrest were the only ones who were arrested 
the rest of us walked out of that building and had no issue and no trouble. And we did send our message that we wanted Paul Ryan, we wanted uh, Congress to to pass a DREAM Act. Um, so that was the beginning um, of all these actions. That was November 9th. I came back home and then, of course, nothing happened with the DREAM Act. And then I went back. Last month, I went for two weeks and I had to come back in between those two weeks because I have, I'm a mother of a 15 year old, an eight year old and a five year old. Mm-hmm. And so I was missing my, my children and I had to help my husband with, with, with them too. So um, the last week, just before Christmas, um, I actually made the decision of risking arrest. And I, um, in one of the actions we had in the cafeteria in the Senate building, uh, we had an action. Um, there's actually um, a DACA recipient that works there. Her name is Anna, and we wanted senators to 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 see that even in the Senate uh, cafeteria, we are there. We're everywhere. Um, so in solidarity with her, we went, and um, it was about I want to say close to 600 people, and that went in there and. Um, we just close that place and some of us risk arrest. Now, I'm curious. I feel like the DACA movement has picked up quite a bit in recent months, but I'm also wondering how effective is protest? Um, I used to think that way too. And actually, uh, here in Arizona, um, there has been other actions where people have gotten arrested. And we hear the comments of, oh, you shouldn't get arrested because like, you look like you're doing something bad. But at the same time, through the movement, I have learned that if we don't get out of our comfort zone, if we don't put our bodies in the line, um, people don't take our, our issues seriously. Um, so uh, we have seen it through history. Um, one of my uh, the people who I most admire is Rosa Parks. And when she made that decision of just doing something as simple as a standing, as sitting there uh, in an area of a bus where she was not supposed to be, uh, sent a, a big message, right? That there was um, injustice going on with the with the African-American community. On face value, it doesn't appear like it's that much in a way. Yes, it doesn't. But, but again, it's just sending that message that you're not going to... Um, comply you that you're tired of complying with what the the status quo is um and that's what this was about to me um getting arrested was more of a i'm not gonna be silenced i am not going to be stopped from delivering the message that uh, we deserve dignity our community or immigrant youth deserve respect um, we deserve a chance and an opportunity because we want to make um, this nation a better place, not just for us, but for our community. Uh, our families live here, um, and we are integrated into this society. We want to make it better, and we deserve that chance to thrive. We are human beings. And we don't take anything away from anyone. I hate it when people say, you take away my job. I'm like, well, 
be my guest like if you want to run a nonprofit without knowing anything <laughs> about nonprofits and you have to like self-teach everything be my guest um there's many other immigrants are are also creating their own jobs because they cannot apply for like the the, the normal jobs and um and like you see out there people with uh, selling uh, elotes like the corns and all these things like they're not begging for money in the freeways they're mm. going out there every day I even if it's hot or if it's cold at night but they know that they need to feed their families and they're gonna do whatever it takes uh, whatever sacrifice it takes to to feed their families in an honest way is there a solution and what might that solution be because you said earlier comprehensive immigration reform probably wouldn't work. So I'm curious what you think could be a solution. I think um, people need to understand, especially not just regular people, but politicians need to understand how broken the immigration system is. There's people that are waiting in line for like 14, 15, 20 years to do it the legal way. There's no real pathway for some of us to become uh, citizens or even residents. Um, so politicians and people need to understand how broken the system is. That's like the first thing uh, in order to, to start fixing all these immigration issue. I mean, instead of putting money on the wall, that money should be put into the USCIS, um, which is one of the departments. It's the Department in Homeland Security that process applications. Uh, so they become more efficient and, and, and they update their systems. Right now, I can just share really quick. If they send your work permit and it gets lost in the mail, tough luck. <laughs> because then you have to pay again another 495 to get another one and they cannot even like tell you where it is with they give you the tracking number and they can't even see that it was returned to to california to the office of immigration in california because they tell me they can't see the u.s postal service website i'm like that's a federal website that's like a google <laughs> so that's how bad it is um the system is just not working um and we need more infrastructure to process um, all the applications that they have to process immigration judges have cases that are backlogged so that's also another area where um is support is needed to fix um immigration that is here already so when i was mentioning that comprehensive immigration reform is not I would say it's not the complete solution. It is the short-term solution for 11 million immigrants. My fear is that there's going to be more people trying to escape the conditions in their country of origin, like El Salvador or Mexico, um, and that they're going to start coming. Uh, they're already coming, some of them. And as the conditions get worse there, we're going to have the same issue in some years with other immigrants. And the Republicans and the conservative uh, politicians are saying, we want to prevent that by doing all this enforcement. And really, that's not going to work because people are escaping those places uh, because they could be killed. So their only alternative is come here and have a hope for a chance to leave. Um, so again, that's not addressing the root of the problem. The root of the problem, to me, I would really love for people to be able to 
live their American dream where they were born, in the place where their loved ones are, where they were raised, where they can go and visit their parents' graveyards, um, where they have a lot of family um, and, and support groups over there and, and they have the language and they don't have to have all these other adjustments that they have to make. So it is not fun to leave everything behind and um, have to adjust to another culture. We don't do it just for fun or just to take advantage of a system. We do it because there's no other real alternative for us. Um, and so that's what the real root of the problem is. If NAFTA destroyed a Mexico's economy, let's start addressing that. If Mexico's economy gets better and if the drug cartels are really dismantled, then people won't have to escape the conditions there. If the the Mexican government stop being corrupt and, and they give a fair raises of minimum wage and all this protection to their citizen, um, people won't have to come here. But then again, you have to do that with El Salvador because and, and Guatemala because those people from those Central American countries are coming to Mexico and if they cannot make it here, they stay there. And that creates another crisis. So, and I know the politicians know this very well, but they're not thinking um, about the real solution because I don't think that it's in their hands completely. I understand that very well. I understand that that's an issue that each country has to address. But I think that the United States has a responsibility to, again, work with those countries in order to make sure that those conditions of living in those places are better so that those people that live there don't have to come here. And again, ultimately, to me, I should be able to live wherever I want. I mean, I just imagine if what if you were born in California and all of a sudden they tell you, well, you were born in this county and you cannot leave at all like you were born there you have to stay there because you were born there and you cannot go anywhere else in the planet how would you feel if they told you that not having that freedom of migrating or leaving or going to wherever you want to leave and and be part of that um, society be that be part of that community so again it, it is even more profound than that and this administration, it's actually making legal migration harder. When they talk about having chain migration, cut off, that means that um, citizens won't be able to petition for their um, spouses or, or, or other family members to come here legally. So that's making it worse and making it hard. Ending a visa lottery. Again, that's another way that people <laughs> win a lottery like literally win a lottery to come here legally and so they're talking about that and it's it's completely like it doesn't make sense at all for me how are you going to fix a problem by taking away those systems that are helping to get some sort of legal migration here um, and again it's just because of racism white supremacy and all these conservative ideas people they feel threatened by by those people who look different than them and that's something that we have to address in the country we shouldn't have that culture of being afraid of somebody that looks different than you you noticed that from a young age I, i'd imagine i did living in arizona um you do feel the discrimination i lived through sb 1070 always having to look in your mirror and see if there's a cop behind you 
um like not having mexican music because you could be a profile that you are undocumented um so all these things like always like just going from work to home and and then again uh, from home to work because you're afraid you're gonna be stopped um in a traffic stop and 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 then that could lead to a deportation family separation thinking about that fear of not be free to like take your car to go pick up your kids to school having to wait for rides or like taking forever in the public transportation i couldn't do everything i do in the day if i had to do public transportation that was one of the things actually the arizona Duma coalition is one of the plaintiffs in the case against the state um, of arizona when jan brewer um, didn't let us get the driver's licenses the Arizona Dreamer Coalition took it as an organization for membership to uh, a lawsuit against the government. And Doc Ducey continued with that uh, lawsuit, which is pending in, in, in courts right now. Uh, but of course, we won the injunction and we're able to get our driver's licenses now. Uh, but again, it's just this anti-immigrant rhetoric. There's nothing wrong with me having a driver's license that's enabling me to have a, a insurance and drive safely in the state. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? Yes, we're going to be having also actions locally. And again, we're not going to leave. Uh, we're not um, going to give up. Um, we have uh, come out already. Um, we. I remember when I was getting arrested and I chanted, um, we have a, a duty to fight. We have a duty to win. Uh, we must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose for our chains. And I truly believe that. I truly believe that um, if people out there think that they know everything about immigration, they should talk to an immigrant. They should really be open to listening to the reasons that made them come here and listen to their stories. I think that's the most powerful thing that we have. Right now, I share my story with you, and I hope that many people um, got a better sense of what our life is like uh, by listening to my story and the things that we go through and the misconceptions that are out there. It is very important for people to um, get informed, and the best way is by talking to an immigrant. That's the only way for you to really understand what the real situation is like. Thanks for sharing your story, Karina. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our first installment of our series exploring the DACA issue. Stay tuned for our next episode. We will have Patrick Morales on the show. He's a governing board member for the Tempe Elementary School District and an advocate for immigrant rights. If you'd like to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or email us at onthegridphx at gmail.com. On the Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And thank you all so much for listening to our 20th episode of On the Grid.